when I think about the Lord, what He has done for me, what He has accomplished for me. He has accomplished the, uh, <laughs> the utmost of anything that can be accomplished. Can you define a power that is greater than the power to crush sin? The greatest rulers in the world could not get a handle on their own sin. And yet God has crushed our sin. God has saved those who call on Him. Absorbed in a matter of six hours what some people are still absorbing in eternity. The wrath of God against sin. Jesus did this for me. For you, he crushed sin. When I think about it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your design. Your design for us and for how we would come back to you and know you. Thank you that you created us. You didn't have to create us. It was just you. You before all time started. You in perfect harmony, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And yet, in a conviction to share your glory and to share the pleasure that you experienced as Father, Son, and Spirit, you created human beings. That's why we were created. And you uh, allowed us to choose our own way, to fall into sin, and to become infected with it. And yet you provided a way out, an escape. That's what this is all about. We're not even saved and and, and restored just so that we can be saved, but so that we can come back to you, be free of that infection, and, and, and be close to you. Thank you, God, Father, for sending Jesus 2,000 years ago to live and walk and breathe and be fully God and fully man for 33 years. And then out of an overwhelming conviction to bring us to you, to give us the pleasure of your presence, he died and in six hours absorbed your fierce wrath against our sin. And he rose again. He got up, proving victory over death. And so we share now in the benefits and the pleasures of his getting up. Thank you, God. Would you fill up this big room with your Holy Spirit in a great measure? And would you take people's hearts, hearts that are a little bit far away from you, hearts that are far away from you, and hearts that may have never known you, would you bring them close? We are in a a cold, dark woods, and there is a campfire in the middle of those woods, and that campfire is your presence. And we don't want to be lost wandering in the cold and the the freezing rain. We want to come back to that campfire, huddled together. Make that campfire now through your word. Use me. Go through me. But may this not be Christian theater. May it not be a display or a demonstration to be awed at. But may it be a source of warmth. Warmth for the cold soul. Would you do this great work? God, give us the strength 
In Jesus' name, amen. So for the past two weeks, we've been diving into the idea, the, the very real truth of spiritual warfare. And now we continue. But today we have victory. You might lose some battles, but the war has been won. Your hope for battling through the ups and downs of life is that the war is already won. It's already been decided. It's already set in stone. And that stone is the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So may this give you peace. Whatever battle you're coming into this building with, whatever is buried under layers and layers of good thoughts and good feelings, whatever is down there, and tearing away at you. If you are a Christian, I want you to stand on this this morning. Your war has been won. You're going to battle. I'm going to battle. It's going to happen every day. I'm going to lose some. I'm going to win some. But God has already secured the victory. So, let's review this idea of spiritual warfare for a second. Because I think that when people hear the idea, spiritual warfare, most people get two ideas in their head. Three, actually. One is, I have no idea what that is. That must be something that super Christians deal with. I think that's probably more common, most common. And then after that, it's one of two extremes. So it's either I don't really know or care, that must be a super Christian issue, or it's spiritual warfare. You mean demons? You mean the conjuring? You mean Rosemary's baby? You mean that type of thing? Or they look at it and take it way too seriously. And they say, I can sense the demon right there. So either it's spiritual warfare is mythological. It's not really anything that I should worry about because it's mumbo-jumbo. Or it's people take it way too seriously. And I've been in both extremes. I've seen people who deal with both extremes when it comes to spiritual warfare. I went to college in Chicago. It's my favorite American city. It's a great city. And there uh, was a man that I met one day on a uh, kind of a missions outing there. Met him at a restaurant, and he told me that uh, he had been called by God to manage the demons who lived in a certain sector of Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> So, that was, that was this guy. I didn't know what to say to him. I thought, well, how's the battle going? How's the, uh, the, the input-output happening in that region? Uh, then I had a friend growing up who said, listen, close your eyes, and if you close your eyes long enough, you're going to start to see demons, because they're everywhere. So, if you're wanting to get to a middle perspective, you don't want to look at that and say that's insane, but neither do you want to retreat the other way and say there is no such thing as demonic activity or spiritual warfare at all, that it's just symbolisms and analogies and mythology from the Bible. So I'm challenging you, before we dig in, figure out where you're going to stand 
and I implore you to stand in a middle place when it comes to spiritual warfare. Don't assume that uh, there are demons sitting next to you right now or demons flying around the air or, well, look behind you, there's one right there, you know. Don't, don't, don't assume that demons are hyper real and that we can see them if we try hard enough, but don't assume that they don't exist either. Angels, demons, principalities, powers, there are forces, and I think we've all felt them, that go beyond simply human sin. Have you ever felt from another person, or maybe even from yourself, kind of an extra level of wickedness, or there's something seriously wrong with this person, and he is, he is being malicious toward me? I think that is possible that there is demonic activity in the lives of others when they go to that extra level. How is it that a man can go into a preschool and shoot 20 children in, in Watertown, Connecticut? Uh, uh, in, uh, I forgot the name of the city. I can't, I can't say that that was demonic activity, but I can't say it wasn't either. So just accept the reality of demonic activity, spiritual warfare, and stand in a middle place. If you're confused about where to stand, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you stand in the middle today. Stand in the middle. All right, so now we've been digging through Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's take a look at that passage really quickly before we get to our main passage. Um, I want you to notice something about the, uh, the armor of God. I want you to notice that as in the picture of this uh, gentleman up here. The armor is mostly defensive. In our great war against uh, darkness, sin inside us, and against our enemy, Satan, we are not so much on the offensive as we are on the defensive while God is on the offensive. So we fight, we battle, but we do it from a place of protecting ourselves more so than demon slayer or, you know, shooting bows and arrows at demons. That's not the idea we want to conjure up. I don't think that's the idea we see biblically. We need God to fight our battles for us. We need to hide ourselves in the protection of his wings, hide behind his armor, his shield, put on the armor of God. And I want you to look at this list, and I want you to see how many of these items are defensive, made for more protection than offense or weaponry. Verse 10, Ephesians 6 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, able, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So, when you see this, you get a picture not of a person who's running headlong, uh, like you imagine Braveheart or something, two sides coming together and clash, but it's more, I am ready and waiting for the enemy to attack me. And I'm standing next to God, 
ready for him to defend me. I'm humble before him. I'm his child and his servant, and I want him to protect me when the evil comes. You get that picture? It's different from, uh, different from a, a lone warrior running into battle. This is not gladiator. This is God, be my gladiator. Now, what's the crown in our victory over spiritual darkness? Of all these, of all these, 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 these uh, battle armor uh, pieces that we put on to defend ourselves from spiritual brokenness, of all the things we can do to defend ourselves when evil comes, what's the crown? Well, the crown is the crown. The helmet of salvation. We have won the war because God has given us salvation. For those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, that is the crowning victory in the great spiritual war. And the implication in, then is that if you are not saved, and by the end of the sermon, you're going to figure out whether you're saved or not. I guarantee that. If you are not saved, then you are defenseless in the war of evil, of spiritual darkness, and brokenness. If you are saved, if you are a child of God, and by God's grace I am, I can stand on that. Not proudly, but humbly. I called out to him. He saved me. He picked me up, just like we heard in the song. Now I am equipped with this armor. It is available to me, and, and when, 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 when the arrows come, and when, when evil and sin comes from within and without, I say, no, I am saved, I'm a child of God. I know the battle might be hard, but the war has been won because I am saved. I am guaranteed an inheritance and a future in heaven. I don't have to worry. I might be broken, I might get hurt, I might get knocked down, and I might even get killed, but I won't die because I'm saved. And he did it. It's not arrogance. It's not uh, Christian pride. It's, it's humility. I am the luckiest person I know that out of the 100 billion or so people who have ever been created, I happened to hear the gospel from a young age. I happened to hear a message that transformed me. I could have been born into a sweatshop in Mongolia, devoid of the gospel, not heard it, and gone to hell. That is a horrific thought, but by God's great providence, he chose to let me grow up and hear the gospel and be saved. And there are maybe 230, 240 people in this room, and if you hear the gospel today, you have the chance too. You have the chance. If you are not sure, if you are on the fence, that's my helmet. That's my helmet. What's the most important body part? The head. What protects my head? My helmet of salvation. So, what, what does that mean for my life going forward? Is this just going to be words? Is this just going to be I know I'm saved and I'm okay. It needs to be a daily thing for me. If you want to battle effectively in this war, your salvation has to become precious to you. Not a given, not 
an intellectual assent, I know I'm saved, that's something I can fall back on. It has to become as valuable to you as your bank account. It has to become as valuable to you as your education, as your career. You are saved if you are a Christian. Search your heart and determine how are you valuing your salvation. Because the degree to which you value your salvation is probably going to be the degree to which you have success in the spiritual war. What do I mean by that? The degree to which you value and cherish your salvation in Christ is going to determine how successful you are when attacks come. If you're valuing it well, that means that you found your identity in being saved. Do you find your identity in being a Christian? Or is being a Christian a part of your life? Is your salvation everything to you? Is that what makes you willing to get up from bed? Is that what holds you back when life starts to crumble? Or is it other people? Is it a show? Is it a dream? Is it something other than Jesus? If salvation is not everything to you, then it is nothing. And you have to search and say, have I really been changed? I've never met a person who was genuinely saved by Jesus and was lukewarm after it happened. Never in my life have I met a person like that. I've come across the miracle of seeing people regenerated, saved, we'll talk about that word in a little bit, saved over and over again, and every single time, there's a zeal to them. There's an excitement, a freshness, a newness. It's like, I am a new person now. My, my life needs to change now. I want to do things differently and get involved. Now, over time, that might wear off. But if you're saved, you should know it. You, can, you should be, unless you were saved at a very young age, you should be able to point to at least some period in your life where you felt something change. In my case, I believe I was saved at a young age. I don't know how young, but I believe it was at least younger than six. And I don't remember a life-changing circumstance because my life wasn't very complex at that time. Am I going to take this toy now or not? Am I going to steal my brother's food or not? I, I don't remember the moral quandaries that were happening in my heart at the time. But I do know this, that ever since age five, even though I've gotten into sin at different times in life, I've never veered way off where it's like, okay, this dude needs to question it. Never. I, I'm, again, I'm not saying that to be proud. I'm just saying I think that's evidence that God did save me. So search your heart. Can you say that you're saved? If, if you call yourself a Christian, I want you to dig deeply and confirm that because Matthew 7, 22 through 23 says that there's going to be a day when many people who called themselves Christians will stand before God and God will deny them. Test the genuineness of your faith as the word of God says, make your calling sure. Where's your identity? Is your salvation a helmet or a bracelet? Is it a helmet or is it a chain? 
a chain around your neck or is it a helmet around your head? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to focus on verse 11. That's our text for today. But um, I'm going to start at verse 9, just to give a little more context. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. When you got it, say got it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the uh, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice uh, homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you and me. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let's take a bird's eye survey of this passage really quickly, and then we're going to dig real deep into it. He is not saying that if you've ever lusted over somebody, if you've ever swindled somebody, if you've ever had a sinful desire, that that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying that. In fact, he says in verse 11, such were some of you. He's saying it's possible to have been in that lifestyle and enjoyed that lifestyle and find your identity in lifestyle, but Jesus can take you out. He can change a person. This room is filled with people who can say that God has changed them. How do you explain a heart that loves sin for 10 years and then suddenly doesn't love it anymore? How do you explain a heart that loves and does sin with all of its might for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and then all of a sudden something happens and they change? That's not an internal click that they just decided to do. That's not Tony Robbins' improve my life. That's Jesus saving a person. That's what he's saying in this passage. He's not being judgmental. He's not saying, oh, you've done bad things. Oh, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, no, all of us have done sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus changed some of you. Now, what does this have to do with spiritual warfare? Is this. Yes, you might have been in sin. Yes, you may have gone down roads you didn't want to go down. And yes, you might feel guilty about it now. But if you've been saved by Jesus, you are a different creation. Your past does not define you. Your future does. You're saved if you're in Jesus. And therefore, you have a big helmet. A titanium helmet this thick. God will not let you go because he's more committed to you being saved and being in his presence than you are. He wants you to be with him so he's not going to let Satan hurt you in an ultimate way. Satan can only go where God lets him go on his leash, right? He's a lion prowling around, but they forgot to say the lion has a leash around him. And God's holding on to it. He's in control of this whole thing. He's in control of your salvation. He's in control of the war that you think he's not involved in. Such were some of you. Such were me. But what did God do? He saved us. And the word he uses here is a very important word. Verse 11 You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and by the Spirit of God. You were washed. This word occurs often in Scripture. And it refers to being regenerated. It's the idea of going down into the water and being brought to be made something new. Not just the water of baptism, but God washing us with his Holy Spirit. Saving us and changing us. And if you've been washed, you are going to know it. When God hits you and you're, you, you have a compulsion inside that I have to do something different. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I've gotta, I've, something's got to change. When you feel that compulsion, that's being washed. That's God sending his arms out to you, loving you, and pulling you back in, saving you. But then it uses two other words to reflect the same idea. It says you were sanctified and you were justified. Oh, my goodness. So what he's saying here is that God washed, sanctified, and justified us. Now, you might say, I'll just take the easy cliff notes and say God saved me. But all these are elements of God saving us. All of this matters. All of this is deeply important. So let's talk about this word justify. Justification. I'm not talking about the TV show. I'm talking about the God show. God justified me. Put simply, when it says that God justified me, it means he declared me righteous. He said, you were this way, now you've reached out to me in faith, and you are righteous. You are connected to Jesus, and your sins are as far away from me as the east is from the west, and you are a new creation. Not anything that you did, God does not pick special people. God takes anyone who clings to him, no matter what you have done. No matter where you have been, who you've had sex with, what drugs you have done, no matter what, God is able to justify you. He made you. He made the very substances from which those drugs came. He made sex. You think he doesn't have control over how you misused it? He can save you from it. It's his world. He's got this. And if you feel the feeling, well, I've done too many bad things for God to really, really be close to me. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll be a Christian, but I'll never be able to get in that inner Christian circle because I'm just not that type of person. No, God is that type of person to take any type of person and make them his type of person. If, if you find yourself pre-qualifying yourself, I have bad spiritual credit, as it were. I'll never get good enough credit to get to God. I've done too many bad things, made too many bad decisions. No, that's Satan probably working on you. That's spiritual warfare right there. What does Satan do? He lies and deceives. He accuses, he lies. That very well be, may be Satan working on you. So what's the truth? How do you get rid of a lie? You have to put truth in front of it. You can't get rid of a lie by running away from it. You get rid of a lie by running to the truth. And this is how we know the truth in God's word. God can do anything. Now, I love language. I'm a word person. Yesterday we had a little game at our baby shower where someone, uh, where they asked us to make as many uh, words as we can out of the letters of our, our last name, my wife's and my last name. And this one girl beat me by half. She beat me by twice as many words. I was like, how are you going to take my name and make more words out of my name than I can make out of my name? She was... She was bawling, though. 
He was really good. I had no idea that T-E-T was a word. So, how are you going to do that to my name? So, for those of you who, who may not know, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Um, it was written in a, a language called Greek, or Koine Greek, uh, mostly in uh, the area where we uh, know as today as Turkey, uh, more, uh, more of the where Jerusalem is, Israel, Turkey, Syria, Jordan. It was written in, in regions like those and circulated around and then came to us. And uh, people, will, people will say, oh, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's been translated so many times. Well, guess what? We have, uh, we have uh, uh, the closest possible copy to an original manuscript with the widest amount of copies of any historical book. And there's accuracy there. So if you want to say, well, it's been translated, that doesn't mean anything. Because how do you explain a copy of the Bible coming from Western Turkey uh, to a copy of the Bible coming from Northern Africa and Egypt, and they have the same words, and the people never met each other? I'll take that to be accurate. Incredible scholarship has gone into this Bible. So don't listen to Bill Maher or some talk show host who says, whoa, you can't trust the Bible. Send, send them our way. We'll, we'll take care of them. <laughs> uh, so what you read, you can have confidence in. All right. Now, this language, Koine Greek, uh, there, there are words in, in the language that, that, um, that occur often in Scripture. Now, look at this word where it says, in verse 11, you were sanctified and you were justified. Okay? The word justified uh, is, a, um, I'm trying to pronounce it correctly, see, edikaiothete. It means you were made righteous. Dikaio means righteous, thete means you were made, and so it means you were made righteous. God made me righteous? God made me holy and pure? Is this possible? But I sin. How is it possible that God declares me righteous? He looks at me and he sees me as the, under the lens of Jesus and he says, you're righteous. That doesn't make sense. We're going to use our friend, Mr. Computer, to help us make sense of this idea that you were justified, you were made righteous, you were declared righteous. All right, so bear with me. I'm going to try to get a little power cord. Pastor Jamal is an incredible man. He fixed my suit before I wanted to preach, and he lets me use his computer. He came up to me and said, young buck, let me, let me do a little, some, little tailored job. All right. This isn't a gimmick, I promise. All right. So if you're willing to think outside the box with me, bear with me a little bit. I want you to imagine this with me. Um, I put my phone up there. This phone was far from God. This is Jesus. This is me. All right? This is me filled up with a virus, infected with sin, consumed with malicious code. Who's ever had a virus on their computer? It's hard to get out. You can wash a stain out of those clothes, but you can't get a virus out of the computer without some help. This is like us 
stained with sin. We do good things. You can still use it. It can still perform basic functions. But at the end of the day, perhaps it has a virus in it. Corruption. It can't get it out. It's not like it does bad things. It has bad in it. People are not morally neutral. We do some good things and do bad things. No, we have sin in us, running through us like a bad virus. We can't get it out of ourselves. And when God looks at us, he sees us as corrupt. But here is God, and I don't want to reduce him down to a computer. This is just for creative analogy. Don't, this is not a picture of God. But God is like a perfect ultimate being, filled up with only the purest, of knowledge, full power, glory, it says, perfection. And God says, I will save you and make you righteous. And what he does is this. I call out to him by faith. I beg for God to change me. And this is what happens. Connection. By faith in Christ, his righteousness, his perfect code, his perfect software, all of his good and glory flows to me and takes away all of my bad malicious code, my virus, he absorbs it and crushes it and gets rid of it. This does not mean that I have become Jesus. It does not mean that I am God. I will never be. But it means that I now share in Christ's Jesus' righteousness. Jesus has put his stamp of purity into me. And he's working in me now. The, the malicious software is, 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 is gone. He's, he's taken that virus, that nastiness, that, that dirtiness out. There's still effects lingering effects of it, but he's taken it out so that my identity now is iOS God and not iOS sin. That's what he has done for me. This is what it means to be justified. God declares me righteous. Even though I still sin, and even though I will fall short, I have a new software, a completely new operating system. come back to him in a second. So, now, we've determined what justification is. To be justified is what happens when you call out in faith to God and he saves you. I'm justified. I, I'm free of the internal guilt of my sin. I won't be in hell. I won't be separated from God. I called out by faith, and it wasn't by anything I did. God didn't look at me and say, you've done enough good things, therefore I justify you. I simply called out and cried out in faith. I can't do it. I can't be good enough. Every good thing I do still has a little bit of sin in it, a little bit of selfishness in it, so I need you to save me. This is what we learn in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By faith, by simply leaning on and relying on God to save us. And then he justifies us. But that's not the end. That's the beginning. 
That's the beginning of the Christian walk. Is that helpless, humble extension out to God. I need you to save me. And then, with the new operating system, do you leave your phone on the floor? You do things on that operating system. You use it to build programs to make new things happen. Would you download iOS 9 and not ever use your phone again? No, you download the new software so that you can use it. And so when God justifies us and gives us his righteousness and his purity, it means that we have a new track for our life now. And we start doing life, but with him. And this is where the other word in this verse I want to focus on comes in. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now the word sanctified is hegiastete. Hegias is a word that means holy, and thete means you were made. So when I was saved, not only was I justified, declared righteous, but God started in me a, a process of separation from sin. Here's what it means to be sanctified. It means that God has not only saved me, he has set me apart he has made me a new creation, different from the world. Even though I'm in the world, my heart does not long for what the world longs for anymore. And I'm still going to sin. I'm going to sin until the day I die. But God is slowly changing my desires. He's slowly making me different. That's what it means to be sanctified. Now, some of you really astute language people might look at this and say, but it says you were sanctified. I thought that it's something that happens over time, like you are now becoming sanctified. Perfect tense, you are becoming, it's happening, or progressive. But it says you were. I thought that, I thought that it happens over time. But here's what he's saying. There are two senses in the Bible in which the word sanctification is used. One sense is set apart, and the other sense is, as you're being set apart, now he's making you better. Does that mean? You see what I mean? It means you took your special phone, put it on another shelf, and now you're beginning to do things with it. When he says you were sanctified, it means you were set apart to be used for a better purpose, and now that better purpose is starting to get formed in you. Does that make sense? See why that's not a contradiction? You were sanctified, you were set apart, and now it's happening in you. Okay. So hopefully you're not too confused here. Let's talk justification and sanctification. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be justified, but it also means that God is now doing a new work in you. Justification happens in an instant. It happens once. This, this happens. Help me, God. I'm crying out by faith. Saved. That happens once. It's perfect, and it's it's complete. You can never be more justified than at the moment that you reach out to God. In faith. Sanctification is over time. It is progressive, hopefully. It, it is me daily washing myself in the water of the word, changing my desires, being with God's people, learning to hate the sin I used to love. That's, that's a process. That takes a long time, doesn't it? Okay? Justification is completely God's doing. 
I call out in faith, but then God does this work. It's completely him. It's one person that does the justifying act. Sanctification is two people. Sanctification is not, I'm on autopilot waiting for God to work on me. Sanctification is, I am saved, and now I battle in this great spiritual war as God works on me. I'm going to work while he works. It's going to be a two-person affair. It's a covenant I've made with God. I am going to work on my spiritual life while God does too. I'm going to fall. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to get on my knees. But God's going to be there to hold me up. The operating system is here, and now we're going to build something beautiful with that operating system. We're going to design some stuff in my heart. That is perhaps the most important distinction between being justified and being sanctified. It requires my effort. Who's ever heard someone say, God's working on me, when clearly nothing's happening in their spiritual life? I would quote to them 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that says that you can quench the spirit. If both people aren't working, it's not working. God does not work on people who refuse him. I'm not saying God does not help those who, who don't help themselves. That's not what I'm saying. But if God saves a person, he's going to work in their heart and make them want to work with him. There is no such thing as a person who is justified and refuses to be sanctified. That's why they are joined together in this passage, because they are part and parcel of the same thing. If you think that you have been saved, but nothing in your life has changed over years and years and years, then you probably aren't. And that's the hard truth. That's not me being judgmental. It's just me looking at the reality of Scripture. God intends to make a new creation out of us. So, you were washed. God covered you up in his Holy Spirit. He, he, he changed you in a moment. He justified you, declared you righteous, and then he hagiostete you. He made you increasingly holy. He set you apart with the full intention of making you increasingly pure. I can look at myself and say there are sins that I struggle with that I didn't used to. But I can also look at myself and say there are sins that I used to love that I hate now. There are habits and tendencies in my head, in my heart, that I don't love anymore. And I know that's the result of God working on me as I worked with him. It didn't happen by autopilot. It's not God is a Roomba vacuum cleaner in, in, your, in your soul. Just cleaning up all kinds of sin. But it's me vacuuming, me doing that work with him. So hopefully that helps to clear up any confusion about what it means to be justified and sanctified, because those are big Christian words we hear a lot and we probably get scared of them. But you don't have to be scared of this stuff. This is clear, and that's, that's what pastors are for, is to, to make it clear. And you can depend on us to do that. So... Um, Let's look at a couple passages really quickly. I want you to turn to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works and, uh, in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How about this? He just said that I need to work because God is working. So who's doing the work? Both of us. In sanctification, I'm working and God is working. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a far cry from, I'm saved, I got the ticket, I'm good. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's different. That's so different. I got baptized at six. What are you going to say to me? You're going to tell me I'm not a Christian? I read, I read the prayer. I prayed with somebody. I prayed with the pastor when I was six years old. But you've been living in sin for 20 years. I don't care. I got the stamp. Salvation is not like getting a social security number. Where you get it, and, and it's just... You confirm your identity by your lifestyle. You confirm your identity by your lifestyle. Just look at your own life. I need to do this every day. The other day I was so depressed about parts of my life and I had to sit back and say, am I really, am I really living to honor God? And I know I'm a Christian because I felt this weight in my heart that pulled me back and said, okay, it's time to change. I'm not saying I was involved in serious sin. It was just like, I'm getting lazy. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, drifting away. I'm not really serving people like I need to. And then I felt this hook just like, whoop, turn me around. And I was like, okay, it's time. But what if that hook weren't there? What if I had drifted farther? What if I had gone really deep into sin? Then I would be scared. I wouldn't be telling myself, no, I prayed with somebody when I was six. I would be frightened to my core. And I would turn back and work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Because I want to confirm that God has actually saved me. Let's look at a few more passages. I call these the one one ones. We're going to look at Philippians 1.11. Just on the other side of the page. In verse 11, Philippians 1.11, look what it says. It says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to look at that phrase, fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is not a stamp that makes you something. It's a seed that grows things. If God has justified you, he doesn't put a stamp on you so much as he puts in you an identity-shifting seed. That grows fruit. So guess what? No fruit, no root. No fruit, no root. What are the fruits of your life? Does your life bear the fruits of someone who has been fundamentally changed? Or is Jesus just a chain on your necklace? Or a cross on your, on your necklace? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1.11. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. Just a few pages over. 2 Thessalonians. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
Now, let me clear up something really quickly. When I say work of faith, I'm not talking about speaking into the atmosphere and my faith made this car come down out of the sky. That's not work of faith. A work of faith is the same thing. It's a parallel thought to fruit of righteousness. Fruit of righteousness, work of faith, the same thing. Because of my faith in Christ, now God planted the seed in me. He made me different. And now things are starting to come out of my life that didn't used to come out before. And then sin is not happening in my life the same way it used to, right? As uh, Pastor Jamal says, it doesn't mean that we are sinless. It just means we sin less. The work of faith is, is something happening in your life. Okay. So now let's wrap this up. What does this have to do with spiritual warfare? This is what it has to do with spiritual warfare. If God has saved me, and if my life is changing, and if I am loving sin less, and I'm desiring to bear fruit in my life more, then when the attacks come, I'm going to be able to withstand better. The closer you are to that campfire, the closer you are huddled together with other believers, and the more you love Jesus with all your heart, the less you're going to feel that, 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 that pain, that brokenness from Satan gnawing on you. Satan is relentless, the, the, the hater of your soul. You could talk about haters, but he is the hater of your soul. The hater of your soul hates you with an unending passion. And to defend ourselves against him, we have to run headstrong into the arms of the one who saved us. Do you love this God like that? Or is your life an up and down thing where church is kind of there, Christianity is an influence in your life, you get bits and pieces of spiritual advice from different places? If that's the case, then what are you going to do when the battle really comes? Are you living as if you are at war? As if the war has already been won? Or do you reject God when something bad happens to you? If there's a death in your family, is your first instinct to say, God, where were you? I don't believe in you. Or is your instinct to say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to run to you and I need you to, to, to make things right. I need you to heal my broken and hurting heart. There's going to come a day when, when, when middle-of-the-ground Christianity is going to, it's not going to happen anymore. There's going to come a day very quickly where you might get jailed for saying you're a Christian, where people will put fines on you and, and, uh, and try to hurt you legally for what you believe about homosexuality or what you believe about marriage or what you believe about family and spankings. And, and it, there's going to come a day where, where it's going to be impossible as an American to be a lukewarm Christian. Because right now it's cool to be a lukewarm Christian, but the war is only going to intensify. And you're going to have to make the choice to become a serious Christian or not a Christian at all. 
I'd make that choice now before later. Are you looking for a Christian life that's comfortable, free of pain, free of war, free of coming to Jesus? Guess what? Whatever that life is, it doesn't exist. There is only non-Christianity that looks like Christianity, or there is serious Christianity. Don't get into the mindset that there are circles, and the pastors are at the core, and then people, you know, this is not a hierarchy thing. This is in or out. A faith that is not serious is a faith that does not exist. Because God does not do lukewarm. Are you willing this day to work out your faith with fear and trembling? To make sure that your helmet is actually made of titanium and not made of cardboard with metal spray paint? Are you ready to battle as if you've been saved? If you are unsure about where you stand with Jesus, I am begging you right now, do not pass this up. If you are feeling a prick inside you, a kind of inclination like, I need to do something, don't stuff it down. I am here. The other pastors are here. And we want to pray for you and care for you. If you are unsure about where you stand with Jesus or you feel like you need to take your faith to a healthier place, then that is exactly why we are here. Don't stuff it out. I'm begging you this morning. Our standards are too low for what we consider to be a Christian. They're just too low. Shouting out God at an award show, oh, he must be a Christian. We need to raise that standard because the Bible standard is high. Are you there? As we pray and close, I want you to search your heart this morning. If you feel like you're in a battle, remember that the war has been won, but if you feel like this battle and war thing means nothing to you, then search your heart and ask, am I really, am I really close to God? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have uh, our leaders come up and pray for anyone who wants to be prayed for or cared for. That's what we're here for.